This is Mark Steiner, folks, and welcome to our podcast. Good to have you with us listening today. Uh, we're about to have a conversation with Dr. Aviva Chomsky, who is professor of history and coordinator of Latin American affairs at Salem State University in Massachusetts. And she is the author of numerous books uh, about immigration and foreign policy and Latin America. The latest called Undocumented, How Immigration Became Illegal. Uh, and before that, she wrote a book on the history of the Cuban Revolution and many other studies. And Aviva Chomsky joins us to look at Trump, DACA, and immigration. So, Avi, welcome. It's good to have you with us. Thanks. It's great to be here again. So we are facing a lot in this country right now. I mean, when Barack Obama, President Obama, created deferred action for childhood arrivals that we all called DACA, um, I remember we did a bunch of programs on that, interviewed young people, um, what it meant for them not to fear uh, deportation and arrest. Um, but let's talk about that moment and what it meant and and why, given the complexities of immigration, this DACA thing is so important. Okay. Um, so you mentioned one really important part of DACA, which is that um, young people were uh, granted the freedom from everyday terror of, of detention and deportation. But there were other aspects of DACA that were also really important for these young people. And you know, maybe I should just jump back for a minute and explain what DACA is in case not all your listeners are that familiar with it. Um, but this was a program announced by President Obama, um, an executive action in 2012. And it was very explicitly framed as because Congress has failed to pass a comprehensive immigration reform, um, you know, he waited until late or middle of his second term to do this. Um, but because Congress has failed to do this, um, I'm going to implement this executive action. And it aimed at a very small subset of the undocumented people in the United States. That is, there are about, at the time, over 11 million um, people undocumented in the United States, down slightly by 2012. 2008 was the high point at about 12 million. Um, he aimed at a, a subset of that undocumented population, young people who were brought to the United States by their parents as children, grew up in the United States, came of age um, as undocumented and having no legal place in the society. Um, uh, the so-called dreamer generation, um, young people who had been fighting for the DREAM Act, uh, to pass through Congress, which would have addressed this same sector of the population. Um, the DREAM Act failed, of course, in Congress numerous times. Um, and I just, but, but part, so part of the importance of DACA for these young people was not just freedom from deportation, but access to documents that would allow them to do what everybody else in there that they grew up with was doing. That is, when you're a child, Documents aren't necessarily very relevant to your life. Children don't deal with documents. But when you become a teenager is when documents suddenly start to matter. You need documents to get a driver's license. You need documents to get a job. You need documents to apply for financial aid if you want to continue your education. So so DACA opened up these options, and those, those are three of the main um, sort of paths to adulthood for young people, learning to drive, getting a job, and getting higher education. Um, so so these are, are young people who grew up in the United States who may not have any recollection of ever living in another country because they were brought here very young, whose only language may be English. Um, 
who who then as they as they reached adolescence suddenly found their passage into adulthood blocked so so daca was also important to them for that reason and even as the trump administration is suggesting that um these people will not necessarily be targeted for deportation that's one fear that they have but another fear is that they're about to be thrown back into this legal non-existence and um you know many of them are in college the vast majority of them are working all of a sudden they're the lives they've built for themselves here are being pulled out from under them. So, you know, when when Trump first said, you know, if Congress passes a law, I won't have to do anything to support DACA. He knew, as most people know, that a Republican-controlled Congress will not uh, support um, a DREAM Act. It will not support the DACA people, kids, uh, young well, people. Well, it's not really clear what Congress is going to do. Why is that? Um, there has been bi- bi- bipartisan support for uh, DACA youth, and um, clearly the Democrats and the Republicans, and within the parties, there's a, also a great deal of, of divergence, um, but there's very different visions of what Congress might do, but it's not clear that Congress will do nothing. I think there's a, a generally immigrant conservative right wing that wants to um, pass something along the lines of the DREAM Act, probably with some punitive elements in it, as a quid pro quo for increasing immigration enforcement. And immigration enforcement means criminalization of immigrants. It means militarization of the border. It means all kinds of horrible things that we do not want to see. And many DACA recipients themselves and maybe many DACA activists themselves are saying, we don't want that gift in exchange for selling out our parents and our siblings and our community that is the rest of the 10 million other undocumented immigrants who were not eligible for DACA. That is approximately 800,000 out of the 11 million undocumented immigrants are DACA recipients. So so part of the question is which way, whether Congress could do anything at all and whether whether the losers of this, maybe even if the DACA recipients are granted some kind of status, who are going to be the losers in whatever kind of deal is worked out? So I, I, what, what do you think then is the political response to this? I mean, I was looking on the web today, this morning. Uh, people like Amin Steele and others um, were arrested in New York supporting what they said were DACA arrestees. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, so I'm trying to get understand whether people have actually been arrested now who would, who were young people under DACA. Is that happening? And what our political response should be? Um, so the protest, the, the DACA recipients who were arrested um, yesterday and the day before in New York were arrested protesting. Right. That is, they were not put in, they were not detained by ICE. They were not put into deportation proceedings. Um, and they, their DACA is still, uh, still exists. Um, the way DACA, DACA wasn't just wiped out completely, um, President Trump gave it a six-month limit. So people who had DACA before Tuesday still have DACA today. Um, and and so, so their arrests were committing civil, for committing civil disobedience, and um, those who were arrested supporting them um, are supporting the DACA program. But, but what we're not talking about, I mean, there's a difference between being arrested and being 
detained by immigration authorities and placed in deportation proceedings. So we're talking about people who were arrested committing civil disobedience. So, but given that, I mean, in cities like New York or other cities that are sanctuary cities. So um, sanctuary cities, um, sanctuary policies are very important, and I'm fighting very hard right now for sanctuary status for my own city of Salem, Massachusetts, and also for my university. Um, but there is a limit to what sanctuary cities, counties, states, and universities can do in terms of protecting undocumented people from detention and deportation. Um, basically, what sanctuary cities can do is restrict the local law enforcement collaboration with ICE and their, the, um, the right of local law enforcement to refuse to collaborate with ICE has been upheld in various court cases um, around the country, including the recent decision in Massachusetts. But they cannot prevent ICE from coming into their communities and detaining and deporting people. So um, sanctuary is very important symbolically, and it's very important. It can be very important in individual cases where ICE is requesting local law enforcement collaboration in order to detain people. Um, but it does not really protect people from ICE. So then, come back to what I was asking earlier. Then, Sorry, and, and, no, 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 I didn't know it was important what you were saying. But part of what I was also asking was really important. That, that so, what is a political response, and what are the dangers facing um, the potential dangers facing DACA kids, students, and their and young people and their families? Um, well, there are a lot of dangers, um, a whole spectrum of dangers. Um, individuals who applied for DACA provided the federal government with all of their information. So they are now, um, ICE has, and ICE has access to all of that information. So there definitely exists the, the possibility that ICE is going to follow up and as people's DACA expires, begin to um, detain and put them into deportation proceedings. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily going to do that. We just don't know if they're going to do that or not. But the possibility definitely exists. That's a danger. Um, initially, when DACA was, was implemented, President Obama promised that the families of DACA recipients would not be targeted for detention and deportation. Um, we also don't know what that means now. Um, ICE has their information, so are they going to follow up on that, um, make these people a priority for detention and deportation? Again, we don't know, but, but like all bets are off now. So this obviously increases the level of fear and terror um, among undocumented communities. There's other dangers. Um, as I said earlier, when people's DACA runs out, they're going to lose their ability to work, lose their ability to go to school. In many cases, DACA recipients are the financial support of their families because they're the only people in a family unit who have authorization to work. So they're the only people who are able to work above the table in, in decent jobs with decent working conditions and decent pay. Um, most undocumented adults work, but most of them work in the underground, super-exploited economy. So, so, so families' financial stability is going to be 
threatened um, by DACA recipients losing their status and losing their ability to work. Obviously, the life chances and life plans of young people um, are are going to be completely undermined when they when they lose their DACA status. Many colleges and universities are saying we're going to support our DACA students. That's nice, but how exactly are they going to support them? And there's a limit to how much universities can do. One thing that universities really should do um, is provide full financial support because these students are now losing their ability to work. Um, but not all colleges and universities have the financial resources to do that, much less the will to do it. Um, there's other dangers that might seem more subtle or more abstract, but that I think are real dangers as well. Um, there's been a tremendous outpouring of, as I said, bipartisan support for DACA recipients and um, public support from, from political figures, from, from universities, from all, all over the political spectrum. That's great. But there's a kind of a subtle danger lurking inside that, too. And this is a danger that DACA has carried within it since its very first days. Um, President Obama claimed that he wanted to deport what he called felons, not families. Right. He said that uh, these young people were innocent. He said that these young people were brought to the United States through no fault of their own. So there's something going on here in this language, which is criminalization of immigrants. By identifying this small subsector of immigrants as deserving and innocent, there's the implicit statement that other immigrants are not deserving and innocent, that they are criminals and that they should be deported. So, um, so I think we're opening ourselves we're reopening ourselves because it's not that this is new, but it's being thrown out on the table now. This this desire to criminalize the 10 million. Okay, so many um, immigrant rights advocates now are saying we're not going to sell out the 10 million for the 800 thousand, um, but there's a real danger that that's going to happen and. Certainly many politicians, I think, are very much pushing this. Like, yes, these young people are innocent, but everyone else is guilty. So a punitive model, a ramping up of detention and deportation and of anti-immigrant sentiment and uh, exploitation and persecution of immigrants, I think, is another danger that comes not only from the rescinding of DACA, but perhaps even from the struggle to protect DACA recipients if we're not careful to resist the temptation that is being laid out in front of us by people like Paul Ryan to uh, separate these immigrants from the rest of the undocumented population. Now, that's a really critical point. Um, I mean, it took, as we said earlier, um, the DREAM Act could not pass Congress. It took a presidential edict to create DACA. Um, but that set up a rift right there, as you were describing. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, what is the coming political struggle around this, do you think, um, around the 10 million? Because right after Trump was elected uh, president, um, we saw here in Baltimore, and I saw this from talking to colleagues and, and friends around the country, that ICE picked up their work in a very, I mean, in a serious way. I mean, we saw a, a lot of people in Baltimore 
uh, where we're broadcasting from, arrested. And they weren't just arrested. These were ICE kind of pulling up behind somebody's car, whose car they knew, um, and pulling them out of the car and taking them away. If they were just sitting talking to a friend, people were arrested, dropping their kids off at school uh, mm-hmm. after they pulled away. So you saw an uptick in this. So, I mean, this is, um, you know, this is intensifying this aspect of the struggle. So I'm curious where you as a, also now as a political observer, see this going. Um, so everything you said is absolutely true, but let me also say something more to contextualize it. Okay, please. Which is that you might have seen um, also, and that was reported widely in the media, that um, deportations during the first quarter of 2017 were way up um, over the numbers from 2016 uh, when President Obama's last year in the presidency. So that is true. Um, but it's also decontextualized because 2016 was the lowest year in deportations on, of the eight years of the Obama administration. And if you go back to 2014 or 2013 or 12 or et cetera, et cetera, President Obama's numbers were higher than Trump's in the first quarter. So, so I don't want to let President Obama off the hook here. <laughs> um, and... So it's true that both the rhetoric and the policy changes coming from the new administration have sort of unleashed really arbitrary and punitive behavior on the parts of both individual Border Patrol and individual ICE agents. Um, But at the same time, it's not – this is not really new. Um, these very same arbitrary and punitive policies were being enforced more on the border um, in more invisible ways, uh, ways that are invisible to most of the population. But there were raids, there were roadblocks, um, there were arbitrary detentions and arbitrary deportations under Obama as well as under Trump. And part of the difference is we just weren't paying as much attention. Um, People who are Democrats and people who liked President Obama um, simply did not pay as much attention to his punitive and arbitrary immigration policy. Um, So so again, I don't don't think we want to to let Obama off the hook here. Um, But that's not to say that punitive and arbitrary policies are being ramped up under Trump. They are. And anti-immigrant rhetoric is also being ramped up under Trump. So th- we have to hold these two. Uh, these two are not contradictory. Saying that things are getting worse under Trump doesn't mean that things were pretty good under Obama. Things were really bad under Obama, and some things are getting worse under Trump. So, But where is this going to go? Um, that's always my least favorite question. <laughs> uh, it's really hard to predict because right. there's so many different factors. Um, there's a very strong immigrant rights movement. There's a very strong um, DACA, pro-DACA movement in the immigrant rights community. Um, there are very strong voices uh, trying to insist that we do not just want to save DACA and we do not want to just focus on DACA recipients, but there are also voices saying, let's take what we can get um, And what I fear, uh, you know, the worst case is that we lose DACA and we get more punitive and exploitative immigration policies all around. 
Um, a lot more people are going to die. A lot more people are going to be uh, more exploited in the workplace. Um, a lot more people are going to suffer. Um, saving DACA and making the rest of our immigration policies worse, well, it, you know, it's hard to take a position on that because I certainly wouldn't want to deny, and I, I work with many DACA students, um, the, the hope that DACA can bring for them, but many of them share the feeling that they do not want to exchange a gain in rights for them for a loss in rights for the rest of their families. Um, so, I mean, I don't see this, and I certainly don't see a, a really just immigration policy coming out of this administration or this Congress. So uh, things look things look kind of grim, no matter no matter where we go. No, I think they are dire, and, I, and that's one of the reasons I asked the question. But I mean, just to round out here, one of the things though, there's also be maybe an opportunity to build something different and new and more powerful because a discussion is being unleashed now around DACA and the parents of DACA and the families around um, them um, that that could not take place in some ways under and did not take place when President when Barack Obama was president, but might be able to take place now in terms of movement building uh, and political work taking place under this administration. I mean that 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 uh, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about this, but no, I think you're absolutely right. And you know when I. When I woke up on November 9th and saw the election results, um, it was the 9th, right? Yeah, it was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I've tried to block it out of my memory. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the few rays of hope was that um, many people, that perhaps the complacency that many liberals uh, fell into under the Obama administration that they would be wakened out of it now and would be more willing to criticize the immigration policies, even if the policies weren't that different, but but that many liberals would be more willing to, to step up and, and critique them under a Trump presidency. Um, you know, I'm not sure we know the answer to that yet. Right. I feel like there's been a lot of diversion on the part of pro-Obama liberals, um, there's been a huge emphasis on Russian meddling in the election that I think has sort of captured the, the attention of of the people I would call, I guess, the pro-Obama liberals, who I hoped would um, be more mobilized around more significant and real issues. Um, but, but maybe this is going to be an opening... Um, but I think it's very important that we keep pressing the narrative that this is not just about the 800,000. This is about the 11 million. Uh, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And this is the first of a series of conversations we're going to be having around DACA and immigrants and immigration in our country. We have been talking on our podcast uh, today with uh, Aviva Chomsky. Uh, Avi Chomsky is professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University in uh, Massachusetts, author of numerous books. We'll be linking to all of her books and her work on our website at steinershow.org. Uh, and uh, Avi, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for the work you do and for taking your time with our podcast today. Oh, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> 
And this is Mark Steiner, folks. I want to thank you for joining our podcast today. The show is produced and edited by Calvin Perry. Uh, you can download it at steinershow.org or from your favorite podcasting app. Let your friends know. And let us know what you think. Write me directly at mark, M-E-R-C, at steiner, S-T-E-I-N-E-R, show.org. Mark at steinershow.org. And we'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new podcast.